You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit Irreverent FM for more content from my friends. Hello, hello, and welcome to Bad Words, an ex-evangelical podcast where we give toxic theology the read that it deserves by taking another look at some of the books that have been given major influence in evangelical Christianity. I am Janice Legata, and this is a meeting of the Bad Book Club. We are reading The Bait of Satan by John Bevere, biting into it one chapter at a time. I'll read the opening paragraph and give a few thoughts, and then join one of the members of the Bad Book Club for a discussion. In the end, I'll read the closing paragraph and give some closing thoughts, all with the intention of leaving you free to think your own thoughts about the chapter, the book, and all things really so. Without further ado, let's get into... Chapter 11, Forgiveness. You don't give, you don't get. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And whatever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Mark 11, 24-26 For the remainder of the book, I want to turn our attention to the consequences of refusing to let go of offense and how to get free from it. Jesus meant what he said, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. We live in a culture where we don't always mean what we say. Consequently, we do not believe others mean what they say to us. A person's word is not taken seriously. Well, y'all, welcome to chapter 11. Hey, chapter 11, that's a type of bankruptcy. And that seems right, because this chapter isn't just empty on its own. It wants to empty you. Hey, look at that, JB. We can all make up correlations. Anyway, John Bevere has entitled this chapter, Forgiveness. You don't give, you don't get. But I'd like to call it Christian Toxicity. You don't have to ask, you're going to get it anyway. This chapter takes two of what I think are the most misunderstood and misused concepts in Christianity, forgiveness, and hell. It cranks them up to a Bevere level 10, and I think, surprise, surprise, that John Bevere's conclusions are awful, basic, and completely unhelpful. And holding fast to my decision from the last chapter to categorize and gently place John Bevere in the bad man trash can, I think his views, a lot of the views of evangelical American Christianity, have white supremacist foundations. And I don't even fault him for that. I think when we zoom out, it makes sense that white American Christianity would land on a version of forgiveness that puts all the responsibility on the injured party. But what I can and do fault John Bevere for is being so incurious and so insufferable, for being so far up his own blessed assurance that he thinks his basic ass nonsense is some kind of revelation. But we'll talk more about that on the other side. What I will say up front right now is that I think the idea of our ability to forgive being tied to God's willingness to forgive us is crazy and abusive. And if it's true, if that's how it works, then God is crazy and abusive and all of us are probably hellbound anyway because the salvation prayer doesn't actually seem to mean much, if anything at all. It is such bad theology. And to me, only a God that is abusive would set up a system that so heavily favors abusers. Or only abusers would paint a loving God with such awful brushes. Anyway, you listen and you decide as I try to make my peace with going to hell because by John Bevere's estimations, I definitely am. Right along with book club member number 11, Bella. So I'm Bella or Isabella. I grew up in a range of different types of churches from extremely fundamentalist Southern Baptist girls couldn't even show their ankles even though I was literally eight years old all the way to mega churches and I don't want to name drop but I'm gonna name drop I went to Gateway for a couple years 
that was um, great at the moment and now I look back on it and realize like, wow, a lot of stuff was really kind of messed up there. So I've just kind of gotten out of the whole church thing within the past couple of years. Um, I moved cities and then just never found a church and that kind of helped me step back. And then I just recently learned that deconstruction is a thing, so I'm starting to go through that process. But even though it's what I've been doing for years, I didn't know there was a name for it. Welcome to all the communities. I love it so far. It really is a good time. It, it is literally the best of times, the worst of times, mm -hmm. all the time. But it's, what do I say? I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but I wish it for everyone. Yeah, for everybody who needs it. But yeah, so, so my first, you know, overture of friendship was torturing you with the bait of Satan. So what, what's your history with this book? Where did you first hear of it? I first heard of it in the email you sent me. Ah, a brand newbie. That's, that's nice. Mm -hmm. Had you heard of either of the Beveers? No, or so I'm not sure. It, it's a name that sounds familiar, but I guess whenever I heard it, it wasn't really important enough for me to remember. Nice. Wow. You were, you were out there so clean and innocent and then <laughs> not anymore. So how did you feel about about reading part of it? Um, so through the introduction alone, I realized he likes to make stuff up. And then I actually read the chapter and realized, wow, he really likes to make stuff up. <laughs> um, and so a little context, I just graduated college. I got my degree in criminology. And when you're doing like social sciences like that, especially with things that are very controversial, which I, I love to write about controversial stuff. It was my favorite pastime. Um, you have to be able to back everything up in fact and just assume that every every word you write is going to be researched to death to make sure you're telling the truth. So naturally, I do that with things I read because it's just kind of what I've conditioned myself to do. So I started researching things like what he thinks the Greek meant or what he thinks causes cancer. <laughs> oh, oh man, this, this is going to be good. So reading chapters one through three, he's just laying, is it a foundation? I don't even know what he's doing. Like, like you said, he likes to make things up. So it's just, just a lot of that. And then kind of four, four, five, and six were big, like storytelling chapters. So he's pulling Bible stories like Joseph. And I can't even remember what seven, maybe seven is lumped in there. And then like eight, nine, and 10, those were the chapters I was most worried about because they were the most coherent. And I was like, oh, I could see somebody maybe reading this and being like, oh, this isn't so bad. And then he came back in 11 with a passion for just wrongness, <laughs> just like flagrant disregard for any kind of writing rules. Yeah. That I was just like, wow, welcome back, JB. This is, <laughs> this is you at your... Just peak, peak John Bevere. Yeah, um, I've, I've never read any of his books. I'm never going to read any of them again. <laughs> Good girl. Uh, yeah, <laughs> 10 out of 10. Would recommend you stick with that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, what chapter did you have and what was it about? I had chapter 11 over forgiveness. So after, once I read um, the title of the book and the title of the chapter, I didn't need to read anything else to know what was going to happen. I didn't think it was going to be as bad as it was, go it was going to be. But when I saw, um, okay, it's over forgiveness, I immediately thought, okay, he's just going to preach blind forgiveness, which he did. But then when I really got into how you need to forgive offense and like he talked about offense in a way of, oh, liberal snowflakes get offended so easily. But in, in reality, through the, through the stories he tells and also just kind of 
being being able to critically read, you can kind of figure out that the offense he really means is hurt. So like these people that he's talking about, they 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 aren't like offended about something. They've been deeply hurt about something, and he's just saying he's essentially calling that a sin and saying, well, you need to just forgive it right away. So so you know, re- reading the chapter was a lot. It, it was kind of difficult, and it was also very frustrating. Like I said, my boyfriend on the other side of the house had to ask me every few minutes if I was okay. <laughs> Which I was not. Oh, it was. Um, where did I put it? I have all four word documents up on my computer, and I just keep losing them because I, I put notes in there, very like sassy notes. Oh, I like you. Like I, I've just been writing. Like my margins are just full of. It's <laughs> like what? What, John? Where? How? Oh Why? yeah, exactly. I think I think one of my notes is just where in all caps. Yeah. So let's let's hear some of these sassy thoughts. Oh, geez. Okay. So I kind of want to start in the in the preface because what he did there is kind of important and it sets the tone for what he's doing in the entire book. He immediately says that this is truth. And so my note on there was, well, truth seems pretty subjective right now. And then for a couple of paragraphs, every time he wrote the word offense, offended, offend, I put next to it the word hurt. And then if you read it with the word hurt instead of offense, things make a lot more sense um, to like why these people are feeling the way that they're feeling. He, he went into the story about the, the, the boy or the man who had been given up by his mother and then he spent a very long time hurt. We're not calling it offended, it's hurt, as somebody would be. And my note on this, like at the end of the story was, he tried to frame this rift between mother and son as unforgiveness, but the story shows a hurt child and a regretful mother finally taking the time to reconcile what happened between them. This wasn't blind forgiveness. This was healthy communication that led to forgiveness. And what he's kind of pushing is we skip that step of communication, reconciliation, retribution, whatever it needs to be. He's pushing us to skip past that step and just go straight to forgiveness so everybody can forget what happened, even if like we really should not be forgetting these things. He said, this book is God's word made flesh. And I said, that's pretty sacrilegious. <laughs> and then he goes even further later on to say offense is rampant from a lack of genuine love that quotes knowledge puffs up but love edifies and you know kind of go, kind of going on don't seek knowledge because that's bad and I, I i noticed that what he did between discouraging knowledge and also saying that what he was writing was the literal word of god he was putting himself up on a moral high ground of this isn't me saying it this is god saying it and so you really shouldn't question it because it's what's what god is saying that appeal to higher power fallacy um one of the most obvious examples i've ever seen of it and it's a little scary because this book is written for very vulnerable people who want an answer and this this is gonna kind of manipulate them into doing what he wants because he has established himself as having that moral high ground and then on a less serious note at the very end of the preface he said let's pray and i said let's not I just needed to make myself laugh while I did this, and I, I had a lot of fun actually. Same. But yeah, and then just getting into the chapter, it just—it it was so much. He—he was—he talked about how unforgiveness is so rampant in our churches because we don't want to take the word of God seriously. But you know, I think that forgiveness without action means nothing. So I like if somebody wrongs me, I can forgive them. But unless they change their actions so they don't do whatever they did again, that their apology and my forgiveness really, really means nothing because nothing's ever going to change. And something that I've found through these very harmful churches I've been in is that the higher ups in the church are very unwilling to change. And that's why people are not 
so quick to forgive them because it, it basically means nothing, you know. And then he got into the story of somebody who didn't have time to get saved a certain day and then died in a car crash. I didn't hear that exact story, but I heard something just like it when I was like 11. Yeah. The stories I heard before I was even a teenager. Classic good childhood stories, like mm -hmm. bedtime stories, basically. Oh, and like some of those stories, I think back and think, there's no way that happened. That was a fever dream. Like I, I got sick a lot when I was in elementary school. This had to have been like a fever dream. And then I would text an old friend who's also deconstructing and say, hey, do you remember this? And she's like, wait, I'm not crazy. Yeah. Yeah, Christian Christian childhoods are something. Yeah, it's why I like the um, the deconstruction movement because I'm finding people who can say they've also been through it, so I don't I don't feel nuts. Yeah, no, we we have been there. Yeah, and you know it's it's a lot. So then he says that she had refused to forgive a relative and therefore could not be forgiven. Um, referencing why somebody who had said the sinner's prayer was still in hell, and even though. You know, when you're in the church and you're trying to bring people in, you tell them all you have to do is pray this prayer and you're done. Right. But this shows that that unconditional love is actually extremely conditional. Very, very conditional. Yeah. But but it's sad because people don't find that out until it's way too late. Until, you know, that church is their entire social circle. That is where their money is going. That is where their life is going. And they feel like there's nothing outside of it. Um, but we just don't tell them until until right. they're too deep to turn back. Yeah, so right right on that thing. So that whole, yeah, she refused to forgive a relative. That's why she wasn't forgiven. I wrote, this is bullshit. And then I said, I, I'm going to hell because I don't forgive John Bevere for this book. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I'll see you there. <laughs> I don't and I won't. I will not forgive him. Oh, no. Just when you think you can probably get around something, you read the next sentence and it, just, it gets worse. Next to when he said, for you to receive from God, you must forgive. I wrote, and it was like midnight when I wrote this, so it's a little incoherent. He is basically holding a gun to her head and demanding she forgive a horrific abuser when she may not be ready to do so or accept her own death if she refuses. Um, and, th and that's in reference to the, the wife who is telling him about all the terrible, horrific things that her husband had done to her and why she does not feel as though she can forgive him. And I've been through some pretty horrific abuses. And I'm not really ready for to forgive the person that did that. And I think that that's very reasonable because it there's a lot there's a lot to process and that takes a very long time and it's on nobody's clock to own to do that. That's something I'm learning in therapy. And he it's not until not till later in the chapter where he he defines torture, so he uses he uses the dictionary. Mm -hmm. And this is the first time in this book that he uses the dictionary. And so I wrote there, I was like, oh, John, you do know what a dictionary is. <laughs> and I'm fascinated with what he doesn't define, because he never defines forgiveness. No. Like, he never actually says what it is. And so yeah. earlier when he says, like, the way, the way we forgive, release, and restore another person is the way we will be forgiven. I'm like, hang on. You are tacking a whole lot of things onto forgive. You cannot add two more words to the list of forgiveness after forgive. Yeah, so when, when he says release, I think that's kind of a code word for you are not going to hold that person accountable for what they did. And, you know, abusers don't want to be held accountable, nor does he want to be held accountable for the atrocity that is this book. Right. No, he, 
he wants to be released and restored. And so you're supposed to forgive people, which means I don't hold that against you. And I also, you get to continue doing everything you were doing before. Exactly. Exactly. Because, you know, when somebody is, you know, you don't really forgive to somebody until they're sorry, like that there's that whole process that you learn, but for somebody to be sorry about something, they have to regret what they did. And I, I, I don't feel like you should forgive somebody if they don't even regret what they did. Because you're, you're getting nowhere. Because like I said earlier, a, a huge stepping stone or a huge step in forgiveness is reconciliation, is talking out what happened and figuring out how can we move on and have this never happen again. Right. Something I can just think of is my boyfriend and I, we almost never get in fights. And a lot of that is just because we talk, we communicate very well. But even if we do get in a fight, We'll take a break and then come back and talk out what happens. Even if it takes a long time, we will talk it out and hear the other person out and come to a conclusion and then both go to bed happy. You know, I, I make dinner. He makes me a drink. We're good. That is forgiveness because, you know, it is forgiveness is something you work towards. Everything I'm reading in this book is saying don't work towards it. Just do it. Just do and it. forget it. Forget anything ever happened. But that's that's not healthy. And I think it's kind of important to address what Luke 17 one means because he he quotes that a lot in here. I'm trying to find I it's saw in red words I wrote guilt trip. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll get to that later. I'm trying to I'm trying to find where I um roasted his ability to translate Greek. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's in the other one. I just need to combine all these word documents, but I'm not really that good with computers. Um so he, he says that the Greek translation for Luke 17.1 is offense. And I thought that was a little weird. Now, I don't speak Greek, but I do know how to use the internet. So I went and looked <laughs> it up. I found, the, I found like a word-for-word -word translation from Greek to English for this verse. And what skandalon actually means, it's not offense. It is stumbling block or trespass. Or temptation, it just kind of depends on what school of thought you um, prescribe to. And I'm, I'm trying to find what I wrote because I wrote what the Greek word for offense is. And it is not at all what he said it is. Wait, what? John Bapir is wrong? <sighs> I, I could never think that somebody could lie about such a thing. Oh, wait. Like the whole premise of your book. Yeah. How can I not find it? Okay. It's not here. It is. I, I think I just may have accidentally written it in black, and that's why I can't find it. Um, but it starts with an. It starts with an A. Um, it starts with like A or AK. It's, I'll find it later. Um, so he mistranslates Greek to fit what he wants it to say, and therefore fit what he wants the Bible to say. And I'm I'm not surprised because when you get into enough fundamentalist churches, that's what they all do. They just fit the Bible to say exactly what they want to say. Um, so he takes that one verse completely out of context and then writes a whole book on it. And that's a little scary. It is. That people actually have that power and e either nobody wants to hold them accountable for it or they can pay people off to not hold them accountable. And I'm not sure which one happened here. <laughs> I don't I don't know his financial situation. I don't know if he has a mansion, which he probably does. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The book is a mess. What did I... I'm like, what is this note? Most I, I was laughing on the page. I was like, ah, <laughs> what is this? Oh, okay. So we get, we're like three pages into this chapter and nothing is real. Like everything, everything he's talked about so far, like he has made up. Yeah. He starts out with this, this parent and child interaction. So he builds this whole 
hypothetical person out of this hypothetical child whose parents said, I'm going to spank you, and then never did. And then that child took that to mean no authority figures will ever, I will never be held accountable. Ha ha ha. And here I'd like to pause for a little dramatic reading, not in the sense that I'm going to do anything theatrical, just in the sense that John Bevere is a total drama queen and I'm going to read some of his writing. It begins in childhood. A parent tells a child, if you do that again, you'll get a spanking. The child not only does it again, but several times more after that. Following each episode, the child receives the same warning from his parent. Usually no corrective action is taken. If correction does take place, it is either lighter than what was promised or more severe because the parent is frustrated. Both responses send a message to the child that you don't mean what you say or what you say isn't true. The child learns to think that not everything authority figures say is true, so he becomes confused about when and if he should take authority figures seriously. This attitude is projected onto other areas of his life. He views his teachers, friends, leaders, and bosses through this same frame of reference. By the time he becomes an adult, he has accepted this as normal. His conversations now consist of promises and statements in which he says things he doesn't mean. Let me give you a hypothetical example of a typical conversation. Jim sees Tom, whom he knows but hasn't talked to in a while. He is in a hurry and thinks, oh no, I can't believe I'm running into Tom. I don't have time to talk. The two men look at each other. Jim says, praise the Lord, brother. It is good to see you. They talk a short while. Since Jim is in a hurry, he finishes by saying, we need to get together sometime for lunch. First, Jim was not excited about seeing Tom because he was in a hurry. Second, he was not thinking about the Lord and greeted Tom with, praise the Lord. Third, he had no intention of following up on that lunch invitation. It was just a means of getting away quicker and easing his conscience in the process. So Jim really meant nothing he said in that conversation. Real situations like this occur every day. Today, most people don't mean a fourth of what they say. So is it any wonder we have a difficult time knowing when to take a person at his or her word? Then he goes from that into this hypothetical conversation between Jim and Tom. And he says, let me give you a hypothetical example of a typical conversation. And I'm like, John, if it's a typical conversation, just give me a real conversation. Yeah. Why are we making hypotheticals if this is so freaking common? Just... Tell me the time you did this. No, just like tell us about the time uh, the cashier at Walmart smiled at you. Because I can guarantee they did not mean that. <laughs> right. Right. People come up to me and they're like, wow, you're so nice. I'm like, yeah, I'm being paid to be. <laughs> and so according to John Bevere, like you are insincere. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so he said, so all the lies Jim is telling. So the first lie was like, he wasn't excited to see Tom because he had stuff to do. And then the second is when he said, praise the Lord. That's where I, that was why I laughed out loud. He said he was not thinking about the Lord. He greeted Tom with praise the Lord. <laughs> it was so funny. It was so unnecessary, but I think he kind of used that to paint. Oh, look, Jim is a bad person because he's not thinking about the Lord. <laughs> it was so unnecessary. So irrelevant to the story. So stupid. Like if I say good morning. Oh my goodness. I was not particularly thinking about the morning at all today. You know, he just added that in to like fit the page count for the editor. Only thing I can think of. <laughs> he was like, no, I have to have a list. It has to be three things. It's like me in an essay changing the word because to as a result of this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta meet 10 pages. He snapped on this chapter in the worst way. I was like, you, you've lost it, man. Okay, it's time for a nap. <laughs> you, you are hangry you're cranky i don't know what is happening but this chapter is junk uh, like, 
hypothetical example of a typical conversation and then like doubles down real situations like this occur every day again if it occurs every day give me a real sample and today most people don't mean a fourth of what they say i was like what is where are you getting this number what is this math where, where, where did that come from but you know we learned later in the chapter when he gets into like medical stuff that he doesn't care he doesn't look anything up he just makes things up and then was i heard i heard an unusual testimony Friends of mine showed me an article telling me about his experiences. There are no footnotes in this chapter. Where is this article? John, we all want to see the article. I want to read it. I just want to know where this information is coming from. Because <laughs> I, apparently I'm missing out on a lot. I'm missing out on a wealth of knowledge. Just tell me where to find it, John. I want to read the story. It sounds interesting. Oh, yeah. Oh, this story. I think it's the same one that I heard in Sunday school or in chapel in private school but he just like rewrote it <laughs> my version was a teenager was hanging out with his friends and one of his an adult there was like giving him the story of jesus and said do you want to accept jesus into your life and he said yeah maybe later but i want to go get a coke and a burger with my friends first and on the way to get a coke and a burger this was this this guy was very specific that it was a coke on the way to get a coke and a burger he died in a car crash as you do you know Thinking about it, like telling that to an 11 year old, who just that's, wants... a, that's a terrible thing to tell to an 11 year old, but now it's just really funny. <laughs> You're like, what do kids like? Coke and burgers. It's <laughs> <laughs> stories like that that scared me into saying the sinner's prayer at least once a week. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And then, um, showed him his wife's mother burning in the flames of hell because she had not forgiven somebody. That's some very conditional, unconditional love. That is extremely conditional. Yeah. Um, let's see. Lisa and I have also seen many examples of the trap of unforgiveness in our own ministry. I wrote next to that. Again, here we see his refusal to address the real problems within churches, such as abuse of power, sexism, general abuses, all of those things that are, um, are covered up with a really good Instagram filter. Yeah. But, you know, why would we acknowledge that? Because... And we're holding people accountable. And we can't do that. No. No. And then he tells that, yeah, that long ass story about this poor woman, but not before he's got to big up himself or he's got to let you know how often he ministered, how great it was, how everybody else was moved. Why we should be listening to him. This one woman, she didn't get it, but that wasn't on him. Like, nothing to do with his ministry. Yeah, within this story, that's where I wrote. He's basically holding a gun to her head and demanding she forgive a horrific abuser when she may not be ready to do so, or accept her own death if she refuses. <laughs> and said, you cannot forgive him in your own strength. And I said, nor should she be expected to. You must take this before God and first ask God to forgive you. And then I said, wait, I thought God doesn't forgive those who haven't forgiven. I'm confused. <laughs> Right. He just goes back and forth. He can't. He can't decide on any one point. So he's just. He's like trying to get both of them. Yeah. So God, please forgive me for not being able to forgive the way Even you can't. You can't forgive because I haven't forgiven. Forgiven. Um, forgiven. Wow, this sucks. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then further into the story, lift up your hands and speak in tongues. I urged her for the first time. She prayed in a beautiful heavenly language. To which I said, "It seems kind of forced, but okay, Kyle." <laughs> I'm not very familiar with speaking in tongues. I've never seen it. But from what I do know about it, it is a gift that God gives, not like to new Christians. I don't want to gatekeep it, but it doesn't seem like something that immediately goes to new Christians. And for that speaking in tongues to be valid, somebody needs to be there to translate it and figure out what you're saying. But that didn't really seem important in this instance. 
um, this just makes me think of, have you ever seen that documentary, Jesus Camp? Yes. Okay, it reminds me of when she tells all the kids to start speaking in tongues, and they are just speaking utter gibberish. And if you really listen and watch a couple of times, you realize all of them are saying the same thing over and over and over and over. Yeah. That's what this made me think of. Yeah. Yeah, like we all know, we all learn how to play the parts. Mm-hmm. And like do do whatever your tradition requires of you. Yeah, and I don't know how true this story is, but if that happened, I, I seems kind of forced. Like she was kind of forced into it and she thought that she had to. I, I don't know. Right, because another thing like hovering, hovering, hovering over this, this whole book, but hovering over certain chapters, certain stories, especially this one, is like these these racial dynamics and power dynamics. And like you are in Indonesia, white man, mm-hmm. coming in with your authoritative ministry mm-hmm. and lording over these people. Exactly. And so here you come, white man of God, and now you're gonna berate the sweet little lady who has issues, obviously. She, I think she just needs somebody to talk to. Yeah. But here you come. Forgive your abuser and forget it ever happened. Right. Like this, she needs therapy. Like mm-hmm. she needs help. And you give her your version, which is just. I mean, his version is just like another number in his book, I guess. And she is, she's one of the few women who turns up in the book. And all women who turn up in the book are in this kind of situation. Like they are, they are at fault for not being able to forgive some offense. Yeah. I mean, growing up in a church, you kind of realize women are at fault for everything. So it just kind of, I didn't even notice it. (laughs) Women are are at fault for sin. Uh, I was actually thinking about that on the way home. I'm like, you don't really hear many names of bad people in the Bible, but the one you hear a lot is Jezebel. (laughs) Jezebel. Uh, I can't even remember what she did. I just know that that's a bad person. But I can't think of the names of any bad men in the Bible because it's women who are blamed for everything. Right. I would at some point like to take another look at her story. Yeah. Like she needs, she needs the Disney Cruella treatment. Like we need, <laughs> we need this new origin story. Like what, what actually happened? Yeah, exactly. It just, it just can't be. Yeah, I want, I want the origin story that um, Christians are going to boycott for movie theaters. Absolutely. So then he gets into the parable of the talents. And again, I was like, John, I'm going to need somebody else to check your math because this seems extreme. Yeah, um, I, I, I didn't do that math. He owed the king $4.5 billion. $4.5 billion. billion, John. <laughs> so what I'm, yeah, what I'm finding is if I lie to my boss and say I was actually doing something when I was on TikTok, I now owe him $4.5 <laughs> billion dollars for that lie. Billion, billion dollars, which, but again, in all of this, there's no nuance. There's no, whatever. Nobody's asking, well, how much is this king worth? Mm-hmm. Why would he loan somebody like this? Is, this is usury. This is abuse, John. Yeah. And it's again, it, the, this is establishing him and what he says on a moral high ground and immediately putting us into a debt to, to him, to God to everybody in our lives and making it known to us that no matter what we do, we can't repay that debt. And that's very frustrating. And I feel like that's kind of the root of a lot of mental health issues that just stem from growing up in the church because you're always taught that you are less than and there's nothing you can do about it. Like you are born 
owing this insurmountable debt. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just there. Yeah. Um, so he got, he got into, so forgiveness is like the cancellation of a debt to which I ask, what is the debt in the first place? When you do something, like when you hurt somebody or do something terrible to them, what is that debt that you owe? Because I can promise you they may want $4.5 billion, but I don't think that's really what they need. Right. I mean, that'd be nice, but that's not going to stop me from crying at random things. <laughs> right. It's going to pay for my therapy, if anything. And I said, what is owed to someone who has been hurt? And kind of what I was hinting to myself there is what I've been saying this entire conversation. Reconciliation. A conversation with the person about what happened. How can we move past this? How can we prevent this from ever happening again? Right. But that's not important. It's just $4.5 billion. $4.5 billion. I wonder how many times he's had to pay that out. I don't know. How much, how much does John Bevere <laughs> owe? At this, how much does he owe me for this book? Oh, a lot. <laughs> like, this, this, this is awful. But his, his whole worldview is... Like, he bumps me out. He makes me sad. Because I'm like, you're a sad man. Like you, mm-hmm. The way you see the world is so dark and so even even those of us me coming against the church like Mm -hmm. and i'm talking about hillsong talking about brian houston whoever never will you hear me say i want brian houston dead i want like i don't want bad things not wishing bad things to happen to anyone Mm -hmm. i want brian houston to stop doing what he's doing exactly like i want hillsong to not be abusive like this like, we haven't even gotten to the point of where people are actually asking. We're not even asking for justice at this point because nobody's asking for restitution, which we could be. Nobody's asking, hey, you guys need to be paying these therapy bills. Mm-hmm. Hey, you guys need to give me my tithe money back. Like, nobody's even asking for what you guys owe. Like, we're just asking, moving forward, could you treat the people who are there better than you treated us? Exactly. Exactly. That's like the, the churches I went to, I don't, I don't want them to like not exist anymore. I see the good that some of these churches are doing because I was a part of doing that good. I see it. But I wish they would treat the people in their church a little better and not, I wish they would treat them like people and not numbers. That is all I want these churches to do. If they can do that, awesome. I'll be quiet. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but, but here, like, John Bevere literally turns all of us into numbers. Exactly. Of what we owe and what we're worth. You're only worth $4,000 and you owe $4.5 billion. How do you feel? I'm worth less than my car. (laughs) (laughs) I love thinking about that. That's comforting. So, you know, he, he gets into the debt we were forgiven was unpayable. There was no way we could ever repay God what we owed what we owe him goes on that rant and then i just say at the end i always love a good guilt trip (laughs) because this is this is this is the way that we are guilt tripped into joining the church and contributing and it's kind of disturbing that i like this this argument is not new to me i heard it as young as eight i was guilt tripped like crying in bible class because i felt so guilty like but you know whatever gets them in yeah for just existing and for eating candy when I wasn't supposed to or lying about eating candy when I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just, it makes me think of when I was in vacation Bible school, I was like 10 younger. I, I can't remember that that whole period of my life is kind of a blur. <laughs> but so we were doing it at this at this one person's house and this person also ran a daycare. So they just kind of intertwined. 
Um, and like on the second or third day, this one girl who I really liked wasn't there. And we were asking, where is she? And the, the teacher said, oh, she's inside. Her mom doesn't want her doing this anymore. And then we kind of asked why. And she said, because a little girl went home and kept saying that her heart was dirty. The, the way we guilt children with this exact argument, I, children don't deserve that. No, not, not at all. Because you can't, we can't handle it. No. You don't have the mental capacity to. And no one ever asks like the bigger, kind of scarier questions because it's so you have a debt that is unpayable. Well, who who set that debt? And, you know, if you have a hard time forgiving, think of the reality of hell and the love of God that saved you from it. Who who created hell? How exactly. did that get there? I, a little later on, I have a whole rant about that. So he's going on about $4,000 compared to $4.5 you may feel no one has it as bad as you do, but you don't realize how badly Jesus is treated. So I said, love and validating someone else's trauma. In reality, there are so many things we experience that Jesus never had to. You know, religious people, like, I, I went through it before, like, I officially stepped back from religion altogether. I, I kind of went through a period of looking at different religions that were all still Judeo-Christian and asking, why, 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 why did God let this happen? Um, and I always heard the same two things. One, because of free will and free choice. And two, it's okay because Jesus had to endure it too. To which I just say, you know, I really don't think he did. Right. I mean, yeah, the, the, the whole crucifixion thing, that's kind of terrible. But like at the same time, there are things that just weren't happening in that period of time that are happening now. Right. And, and <sighs> meanwhile, like Jesus, even in the story, you were crucified next to two other dudes. Yeah. So it's, yes, a horrible thing happened to you. Mm -hmm. And on the same day, yeah, that equally horrible thing was happening to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that's to say nothing of like the accumulative lifetime of somebody. Because what was it to be a woman at that time? Right. And like, you know, for women who in American history, if you were burned at the stake as a witch, I don't want to get into a pain off with Jesus, mm -hmm. but... That's a torture. That's a torture. And like, what was their life like up until that point? So it's like, if we're just comparing scars, no offense, Jesus, but there are a lot of people in human history who have got you beat. Yeah. Like a hundred percent. I wrote the word guilt trip a couple of times throughout this page. Cause it's just all guilt tripping, um, kind of forcing you into Christianity through that lovely, lovely guilt trip. Then to get things a little lighter, he wrote, there's nothing worse than eternity in the lake of fire. To which I said, well, this book comes pretty close. <laughs> uh, yeah. I hope he blocks me after this. <laughs> that would be so great. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a weird badge of honor. I just like having these random people block me for no reason. <laughs> I think it's funny because it just shows how petty they are and also how petty I am for thinking it's funny. He said, there's no relief. The worm does not die. The fire is not quenched. I don't understand the worm thing. I think that's a reference that came up like after I left the church. That was it's our very, it is extreme Christianese. Like again, again, you were trying to up the word count here because we didn't need this. Oh, we really didn't. John, we didn't need um, this. Let me see. That was our destination until God forgave us through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And I said, it was a destination created by God, allowed to exist by God. The path to and from created by God, a path that can be easily demolished by God. By God. <laughs> Yeah. So it's that's something I really kind of struggled with as I was leaving Christianity is we call God all loving and all powerful, but these bad things still happen. 
and he, we were set up for bad things to happen to us, and this all-powerful God who can do anything is just sitting back and doing nothing. And that's something I could never really reconcile within myself, because people talk about all these miracles happening, but they haven't happened since biblical times. The, this right. stuff doesn't happen anymore. I don't, I don't see the seas being split. I see them coming up and flooding an entire town instead. Right. So. Yeah. Uh, he said, if you have a hard time forgiving, think of the reality of hell and the love of God that saved you from it. To which I said, the hell God set us up for in the first place. Um, I think, I, I wish, I should have pulled the exact quote because I, that, this is really something that kind of set me on the deconstruction journey is that the concept of Christianity and salvation is basically saying you were created with a, with a disease to which you will die from, but God has a cure, which he created for the disease he also created, only if you do X, Y, and Z. The actual quote is a lot more well-written than what I just said. <laughs> I wish I had found it. Uh, I can't even remember where I saw it, honestly. And then more Bible verses may or may not be out of context. I don't know. I just I started skimming at this point. <laughs> It was getting painful. Let me see. Verses Matthew 18, 34 to 35. These verses have three major points. The unforgiving servant is turned over to torture, which I said, love the choice here. <laughs> free will? What free will? It doesn't seem like there's free will here. It's not free will. You, you have the ability to choose life or death. Do I really have the ability, though? Is, is there really a choice there? I don't know. It's a lot. Um, you know, the original debt of $4.5 billion, and God the Father will do the same to any believer who does not forgive a brother's offense. So, you know, you have, you have no choice in doing this. It doesn't matter what happened, you have no choice in doing exactly as I say. And then he gets into my favorite part, to which I nearly threw my computer, and then stormed into the office, and was like yelling about this. Medical doctors and scientists have linked unforgiveness and bitterness with certain diseases such as arthritis and cancer. <laughs> I wrote in all caps, where though? And trust me, I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. I wanted to look it up. So I looked it up. I could not find any scientific source that said this. The only places I could find that said this were very biased, like Christian news sites, who also had no citations whatsoever. So yes, um, absolutely no scientific backing to anything you're saying. No. Absolutely nothing. Which again, give me a footnote, John. <laughs> There's nothing. Medical doctors and scientists, though. Where, John? Which ones? Where? I just want to talk to them. <laughs> just I just have minute. questions. But I've been trying to, I've been trying to figure out the like the math of all of this because I'm like, okay, God, God won't forgive me if I don't forgive someone else. So He's more bothered if you punch me. He didn't see that. He is not bothered by that. He's only bothered by you ghosting He's... me after a while. Right. Right. So He will repay me for that, but you. You get to walk around punching at will. So yeah, so if I can't forgive you, I can't be forgiven. And I was like, so this all-powerful God is actually only as powerful as I am because yeah. I can I can stop the all-powerful God, mm -hmm. which I forgot which chapter it was, but we talked about this before. I was like, well, if I am, if I was just an evil person and I was just an ultimate villain and it wasn't enough for me, I don't want to just hurt you in this life. I want to make sure you go to hell. So all I have to do is do something unforgivable mm -hmm. to you. And then enjoy hell. Yeah, suddenly you're the all-powerful one. Yeah. But then we get into 
the only valid point I think he makes in this chapter, maybe the whole book, I don't know, when he says forgiveness is usually denied to other people, but sometimes it is denied to oneself. Jesus said, if you have anything against anyone, forgive. Anyone includes you. So, like, that's the only valid point. Just, you gotta forgive yourself. And that's... I, I and if you an don't... Talk- <laughs> if you don't, you're going you to hell. You to hell. <laughs> <laughs> what if I... My last therapy session, we just talked about how I need to be nice to myself and forgive myself. So what if I go next week and just say, I'm not forgiving myself, therefore I'm going to hell. You said it's, and it's over for me. It's a wrap. It's over for me. It's over for me. It's... I just want to know what happened. It's for science. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he gets, he gets so close to saying something. Okay. It's face first into the point and he still misses it. And then what is it? I, you may say, I love God. I just don't love this brother who has hurt me which first you get the word hurt oh okay good, um, good we're making progress we're making progress but then he equates he equates like i i just don't love them with hate i'm like there are a lot of people i don't love but i don't hate them like we don't go straight to hate it's just like if anything you're just indifferent towards a person and i i think that's a very valid emotion to feel because so when it comes to people who have hurt you hating them is exhausting Feeling indifferent towards them, though, it's fine. I, I think that's that's kind of healthy, and it's a good thing to feel on that path towards maybe forgiving you if you can do that. Um, though you should be the only one to decide if you do that. Right. But I guess indifference is also very simple. I didn't know that. I didn't know it said that anywhere in the Bible, actually. <laughs> you know, according to him, this is, this is basically the second Bible, or just as good as, so... You know. And you shouldn't fact check him on anything because the Bible says that knowledge is bad. And if you did want to fact check him, he's got medical doctors and scientists anyway. No names though. Nope. No. Nope. Not a one. But it's all of them, basically. Just trust that. I mean, given I know there are some bad doctors out there, I've had doctors tell me really weird stuff before that I knew wasn't true, but they were willing to die on that hill. But I don't, I've never met one that would say this. <laughs> Oh, John. J-B-Y. And then he wrote, deception. Deception is a terrible thing. Where the deceived believes with all of his heart that he is right. And I put, yep. John. (laughs) Yep. You really do do believe that you're right. (laughs) I don't know who deceived you, John. But, uh... I think it was yourself, John. And I don't think you should forgive you. No. For this. No, don't forgive yourself. Go straight to hell. <laughs> Join me there, John. No, no. It wouldn't be any fun if he was there. You're right. You're like, John, I, I wish your heaven to you, for you. Because... Wherever you're going, I don't want to be there. So how do I not get there? And your God is honestly awful. Yeah. Now, and then it kind of continues to go downhill. I stopped reading at some point. <laughs> Like, in the last two or three paragraphs, I said, okay, there's nothing left for me in this book. (laughs) And then he gets into, at the end, let's pray. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Where did he say it? I have sensed the Lord's instruction to ask you to pray a simple prayer of release with me. He didn't ask me, actually. He asked me to pour a really big glass of wine after that, but that's really it. That's about it, John. So we already, yeah, we already talked about the wild, wild claims and statements he made in his preface and introduction. Mm-hmm. Who, who is this book for? He wrote the book for those who have experienced deep hurt and are in that very vulnerable healing stage. 
we kind of people who are just looking for an answer. And he swings in and says, I have the new word of God. Don't question me, though. <laughs> just take what I say at face value. Because if you don't look at this with a critical eye, I'm going to emotionally manipulate you into doing exactly what I want. But it doesn't help anyone. Absolutely not. It may give people a false sense of closure, but it doesn't help anyone aside from those who have done wrong and are now benefiting from this. Just blanket, blanket, blind forgiveness. Yeah, I'm reading more through my worksheet. You asked, who would you recommend this book to? The garbage can. <laughs> <laughs> so on a scale from one to ten, because everything is permissible, I cannot stop John Bevere from writing a book. He can write the book. I just don't think it should be sold. So on a scale from one to ten, ten beneficial for everyone. Five permissibles, neutrals, there's not hurting anybody. To one harmful for everyone, where would you put this book? I would say a two or a three, because that redeeming factor that I found in my chapter anyways was you have to learn how to forgive yourself. That redeemed it a little, just a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. Until you add that caveat of you have to learn to forgive yourself or go to hell. <laughs> so this book, he originally wrote this book in 1994. So like we're close to... 30 years of this book wreaking havoc just being out here so he he chose offense as the bait of satan was allowed to go all over the world go into way too many churches preaching this message so if you could choose one issue as the bait of satan go into these churches and make them confront it and deal with it what would that issue be oh the code of silence in churches that surround the abuses that are happening that is like what we were talking about earlier i don't want churches to disappear i want them to change this is a big thing that needs to be changed um they just need to stop covering stuff up really and that first fundamentalist church i went to they were incredible at covering up child abuse and letting things happen and teaching parents how to circumvent cps going that far instead of just like addressing maybe you should be a better parent that's that I think that code of silence is a true bait of Satan because that is where these awful things are allowed to fester. They don't fester and hurt. Hurt is bad, yes, but it is something that we can move past. The things that are taught through these codes of silence, you can't move past those because it the things that it teaches people, you and then they go out and teach other people and the ripple effect that it has, you can't move past that. Once the damage is done, it's done. I'll take that. Amen. We are recommending this book wholeheartedly to the trash can. Preferably <laughs> on fire, if it can be. What is something that you would recommend? The first thing I could think of, if people want a religious book, the one I can think of, one I really enjoy is on my shelf. That, that's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy I'm pointing to. The one I'm thinking about is lower, even though I do recommend The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to everybody. <laughs> it's a great book. Is <laughs> a book called The Reason by Lacey Sturm. For anybody who doesn't know, um, she was she was the founder and the front woman of Flyleaf for a very long time. And then in 2012, a lot of things snowballed and she realized, um, you know, I can't, I can't be fronting an international rock band anymore. And now she's kind of off doing her own thing and she's, she's really great. But this is her first of three books. And it, it's just kind of writing about first her journey to salvation and finding God and into Flyleaf and everything she has done since founding Flyleaf. 
but it's also just her journey to learning how to love herself and how to forgive herself and that's something important for everybody to learn is things get bad and you need to learn how to love yourself and be kind to yourself and whatever that looks like for some people it looks like god for other people it looks like going to therapy but learning how to do that is very important and a lot more important than learning how to blindly forgive people. Here are 10 reasons not to forgive John Bavir. <laughs> Number one, this book. <laughs> just the book. We don't need to go into specifics, just trust me. Just the book. And like numbers one through six would just be book titles. The man, the man likes putting people in hell with his books and his stories. That's why I'm the Christian belief in hell. Like I'm convinced it just makes people worse. Like you can't, you can't believe in hell and not be okay with like some kind of abusive love. Like that con the concept of hell, that's never really been something I was okay with, but you know, you're conditioned to just accept it. Yeah. As like fact that this happens, even if you're not okay with it, you have to be okay with it. You have to be okay and with it. And then I've, you know, slowly learned, um, especially through listening to you on Dirty Rotten Church Kids, I don't have to be okay with that. <laughs> Things are suddenly a lot easier not being okay with that. So glad you found Dirty Rotten Church Kids. So glad to meet you. I'm so happy we were able to do this. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. This has been a joy. It's been so much fun. And I'll uh, I'll see you in hell. <laughs> I will see you there. <laughs> I'll be mixing drinks down there, so we'll have a good time. And in closing. Some may think this is a hard message, but I see it as a message of mercy and warning, not of harsh judgment. Would you rather be convicted by the Holy Spirit now and experience genuine repentance and forgiveness? Or would you rather refuse to forgive and hear the Master say, depart when you can no longer repent? <sighs> oh boy. So, let's get right to it and let's go dark. JB ended this chapter with this thought. Or would you rather refuse to forgive and hear the Master say, depart when you can no longer repent? And please note, that is not repenting of anything you've done. That's repenting of not forgiving someone else for what they've done. So, darkest timeline, here we go. Let's say you're an enslaved person in the United States. You have escaped. You are on the run. You have not forgiven the people who enslaved you and did all of the things that entails to you for your entire life. And then they catch you and they kill you. They hang you. And as you are dying, you do not forgive them. According to John Bevere, you are going to hell, where you will most likely join entire generations of your family. Meanwhile, the people who perpetrated evil against you, they get to go on with their lives and seemingly skip on into eternity, never having to be accountable for any of the unforgivable offenses they committed. And this is why I say the foundations of American evangelicalism are white supremacists and so much of the awful theology totally makes sense in that light. If you are a horrible person who is doing horrible things that have put you in a position of power, that has given you the chance to say what the rules are, given the opportunity, of course you are going to twist the narrative to make yourself the hero, to make yourself seem right. And so there were points in American history where white men used the Bible to fully justify slavery. And then when the culture changed, the narrative had to change a little bit. So now they can't say out loud that slavery is a good idea, although some will still say it was a good idea. Hey, be happy blacks, we introduced you to Jesus. But instead of fully facing the evil that was done, the powers that be, 
white men, they decided that forgiveness is way more important than repentance. And so here we are with this abusive theology. And I know how deeply embedded the idea of forgiveness is. And I know how sacrilegious and maybe even unhealed and unhealthy it may seem to suggest that forgiveness not only isn't a requirement, but isn't even a priority, but I would like to suggest that. I am suggesting it. If anything is a requirement and should be the priority, it's repentance. And logically, we know this. You would not go to a restaurant that has an F rating and isn't trying to change anything. You would be a fool to keep getting food poisoning and keep forgiving them. Imagine that F rated restaurant going on to Yelp and saying, hey, you shouldn't be talking about us. You just need to forgive. Actually, you don't have to imagine. Just replace that F rated restaurant with a mega church. Uh, this chapter is 11 pages long. The word offended was used five times, the word offense eight times, the word offensive did not appear, and the word offend got zero use. Also getting zero use? Any definitive definition of forgiveness. And I don't know, call me crazy, but it seems to me that if you are going to hinge something as significant as eternal salvation on forgiveness, you might want to define what it is. But John Bevere never does, because John Bevere is awful. He's awful, unforgivably awful, almost as awful as his God, who he can have and you can have. And if heaven means spending an eternity with unrepentant assholes, then y'all can have that too. And again, hearkening back to the need for I'm not perfect disclaimers, this is where I'm not going to pretend that I have never needed forgiveness, but I'm also not going to pretend like all offenses are equal. John opened the chapter with a verse about God not forgiving our trespasses if we don't forgive those who trespass against us. And I didn't do an exhaustive study because I didn't want to. And I shouldn't have to for a podcast episode about a book when the author of the book didn't feel the need to do any research. But I'd be really interested to more clearly define the levels of trespass and sin and full-on evil. Is it a trespass against you if I accidentally step on your foot or if I murder you? Is that really the same in God's economy? And if sin is just missing the mark, I can sin against you by burning the toast I was making for you. But again, is that the same as me murdering you? If so, that God is awful. And whatever the levels are, however the scale works, if he ultimately can only forgive me to the level that I forgive, then apparently I'm more powerful than he is. And ultimately, he's not keeping me out of his heaven. I don't want him in mine. So that was the verse JB opened with, but every other verse that JB tries to beat us over the head with in this chapter has to do with debts and forgiving debts. Like actual debts, like financial debts, they are parables about money. And as somebody with money and power, if he had any self-awareness, John Bevere would know those verses have as much, if not way more to say to him than anyone in his audience. He brought these verses in and tied them to this idea that God will not forgive us if we don't forgive others. So as a businessman, is John Bevere in danger of hell every time he invoices someone? How long can he, can the government, can anyone pursue a financial debt? He did all that suspicious ass math to come to the conclusion that the unforgiving servant owed $4.5 billion without even asking how someone who was only worth $4,000 managed to and was allowed to accrue that kind of debt. That's not a good system. But honestly, neither is Christianity if it's true that we were all born with this insurmountable, impossible debt. How is God a gracious savior if the one he's saving us from is himself? It's just, for me, the math ain't mathing. And again, 
I understand how central and deeply embedded the idea of forgiveness is in evangelical Christianity, and I'm not trying to tell anyone what they have to believe, but I do think God gave us minds to think and logic to help us live, and I think the idea of forgiveness is well worth deconstructing. So, do with that what you will, and if I lead you astray, forgive me, or let me buy you a drink in hell. Either way, as always, thank you for joining me for this episode of The Bad Book Club. I certainly hope you had a better time listening to this episode than I did reading that chapter. This book is a sin, it is a trespass, and John Bevere owes an unforgivable debt for the money and time this book has stolen. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share and support. Tell your friends, leave us a review on Apple, buy me a chai latte. And remember to show your love to my guests. Hit the show notes for all the info on all of the above and to check out the links to much better things than the bait of Satan. And that's it for now. I am Janice Legata, and this has been an episode of Bad Words. But here are some good ones. From Rabbi Tanya Ruttenberg on episode 79 of Almost Heretical. You know, I think there are a few reasons why America loves the forgiveness narrative. Right? Some of it is... Um, trying to figure out where to start this individualism, right? That we're not in a communal context that demands a coherent, cohesive process of amends, right? It's everybody's alone in their little box and there isn't that sense of a wider community having your back in the same way that, uh, you know, in Judaism, I mean, we'll get there in a second, but Judaism is really big on repentance. We're really big on repairing harm. We're like, forgiveness, yeah, that's fine. That's a, that's a part of the process. We can talk about that. But we want to know about repentance. We want to know about whether or not the person who did harm is doing the work to become a different person. Did the person who did the bad thing, who caused the rupture, who caused the tear, are they owning the harm that they caused? Are they um, doing work to try to figure out why that happened and how they can become the kind of person who makes a different choice next time? Right, which is therapy, which is education, which is rehab, which is whatever, right? Um, and then are, is there amends? Like what could be done? What is the reparation that can be offered? And then we can talk about apology after you're like, you know, and then forgiveness is like semi-optional in Judaism.